Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're also available beyond the FM dial at RadioNorthland.org. So if you're listening to us live, that's all good. And if you happen to miss us, which happens every once in a while, you just can't quite make it to listen to us live. And in the moment, you can go back to Wrestling uh, Memories. You can listen to Wrestling Memories. Go back to RadioNorthland.org. Check it out. We got the archives there ready to go for oh, seven and a half uh, seasons of Wrestling Memories then and now. Some great stuff. Some legends on there uh, who aren't with us anymore to some of the younger stars. Uh, oh, it's, it's definitely quite the mix. It's at RadioNorthland.org. There's other options for you to listen live, too. If you got the smartphone, you get, get that app from TuneIn. We're, we're available on that one as well. Hi, Glenn Broggett. Flying solo this week. Uh, the Grizzled Vet Mike McCurdy is on assignment. Yes, he's always working on uh, picking up a few potential guests for wrestling memories then and now. And I have a feeling in the coming weeks you'll be uh, hearing the results of his uh, his talent search. So that means I got I got the handle this week, and it's always fun to fly solo too, just to see if I still have these old wings uh, working and in, in, in ship shape. And I've uh, definitely found a great guest, and I didn't have to go too far to find our guest today. Uh, I went on. And I've ordered this book, and I'm I'm so excited because uh, whenever I I seem I pick up something from Scott Teal's Crowbar Press, I, I I am greatly impressed with what I've read through the years from the various biographies to some of the stuff covering the various territories or the arenas like Madison Square Garden. Well, you know what? I have another one in the long line of great uh, releases from crowbar press and i'd mentioned madison square garden well this uh, arena is one of many arenas that will uh, be covered in this book uh that's going to be covering uh, the 1970s worldwide wrestling federation scene from 1970 into the early 1980s and this is a very uh interesting book this isn't just a straight up you know history book or results book this was actually done by a guy who can it tells his story from two perspectives in this book one as a starry-eyed wrestling fan and the other as a uh, you know, a, a guy who has grown up and, and found his way into the pro wrestling business as the manager and sometime tag team partner of the legendary late great Nikolai Volkov. This man's done some stuff on his own, too. He's an actor. He's an author. He's a pro wrestler. He's a pro wrestling fan. And we thank the devil he's a pro wrestling fan because he's put out a good book. It's called When It Was Real. And we're going to go back to uh, the 1970s. We're going to go out east to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation with our guest today, the one and only, our comrade, Mr. Nikita Breshnikov. Thank you and welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Thank you so much, Glenn. And I am honored. I love the name, Wrestling Memories Then and Now, because look, uh, as I described with the book, I don't knock anything going on today. In fact, I was just at Cauliflower Alley managing uh, the beautiful, talented Jesse Bell and, and being involved in the shows there. So I don't knock anybody's they're doing today it's just i don't follow it anymore like i used to not when like in this book not when we came from that the 70s to me that was it for sports everything especially pro wrestling but everything i was fortunate to be a fan because people would say well gee uh don't you think you could have really done this or that had you been active it's like you know what i don't care I am so happy that I was just a kid and a fan and got to enjoy it from that perspective. That's even better for me, trust me. Oh, and absolutely. And, you know, as uh, some of us, you know, grew up in AWA country up here where uh, we broadcast wrestling memories then and now, uh, we know about strong territories and, and what they can do and, and, and just what they can draw in 
and uh, the WWWF was, uh, wow, to be able to grow up in that part of the country. I mean, just as we loved our AWA, there was a lot of us in those days, you know, uh, younger, old like that kind of envied, uh, you know, someone who lived up in that part of the country because this was in the pre-internet days when, when, you know, the best that people can get was probably magazines were a few months behind or else if you were lucky enough to have pen pals because, you know, the territories, and it was, again, this wasn't as easy as going to click like we can today to check out these great archives. No, and that's the other thing, pen pals, that's a pretty good, I remember that terminology. For me, it was uh, people... And I mentioned it in the book, a guy that started selling pictures. It was, a, I remember the date. It was in Baltimore mm-hmm. in 1978, and it was July 22nd, a great card. And I just happened to see all these people milling about, and it's like, what the heck's going on? It was like, I described it as being like the stock market going on. And then as I got closer, I see people walking around with pictures. I forget what the size is. It's the smaller size, though. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, wow, that's pretty neat. Where did you get that? That guy over there. So I go over, and this guy whips out this binder, and he's got pictures. Uh, it's just like, oh, man, I cannot believe this. <laughs> they were a dollar apiece. And in 1978, that was a lot. So he and I became friends, and then I started to get information from him. Of course, I made a contact with him. And I bought more pictures as, you know, time went on, which people usually see me post on Facebook. So it was like, wow, that is unbelievable. And then that mystique, the veil was lifted when he would give information about different things to me about what was going to happen. I'm like, no way. How does this guy know? But, yeah. So, yeah, we were in the infancy or maybe just a period where it was, how you could say, like, uh, it, it was innocent, yet it was getting rogue, but you could do what they did because, obviously, you couldn't go town to town and have to worry about somebody calling up and saying what happened immediately. It took a long time for that news to travel, so it could work, and it did. So I'm just, I was thrilled to have been enchanted with it but is the best word that i could describe yeah and you definitely uh talk about it was the quite the different time and uh it was definitely the era where cave fabe was was working its magical spell and having a lot of people under their spell because when you look at some of those great events of the 70s you look at those great houses at these arenas boy the, they did you know they were in it whether they they kind of already knew or not there were people in it and there were people who went out in in droves to see their champions whether it was uh you know out in the east whether it was bruno or or pedro or or superstar for a time i mean they when once they got hooked and especially the way the marketing went for for some of the ethnic champions boy they they definitely got passionate i mean wrestling is definitely not one of those just uh, sit on your hands type of events especially in those kayfabe days of of not only the 70s but the 60s previous well, you know, Glenn, when I hear the term that wrestling is cyclical, no, it's not cyclical because I'll tell you why. And I'm talking as a fan, and we would buy tickets the night of the show for the next month. No idea who was going to be on the show yet, but we knew it was going to be great, and we wanted the best seats. So the ticket booth opened at 6 p.m. There was a guy that would get in line at 10 a.m. in the morning so he could be the first guy. And, look, that's how much it mattered. You Mm -hmm. give the people what they wanted, and they did, and they were there without a doubt. 
And that's why I try to tell some of the younger kids, I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm not just trying to peddle my book here, but what I'm telling you is true. You read how to touch people, what matters. Diving out of a second-story window through a flaming table, yeah, that's cool, but everybody's trying to do that. You've got to figure out a way, how do I make these people either hate me, love me, in any event, want to see me? And that's what these guys did. Hey, look, I even talk about, you know, there's people that say, oh, I sold out this, I sold out that. Hey, I didn't come to just see Bruno or the chief or whoever. I came to see the whole part. Even the preliminary guys, they were entertaining. We loved it. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a, a two-part question. When did you first uh, become acquainted with wrestling on TV? And also, when was that first arena show? Let's talk first about the television lore, the TVI, and then getting to the arena itself and taking it in and all the sights, the sounds, uh, everything that, that goes into a, a great wrestling show. Well, the first, it was 1970 when I actually was waking up to the fact of pro wrestling. I kept hearing kids in school talk about it. And so I said, all right, let me, let me tune in. But i got to give you some background. I came from a horribly abused childhood, very physical. My father was an alcoholic, a big, burly guy. And, I mean, I even had scheduled beating. That's how horrible it was. And the names, it, it's just, it was terrible. And, okay, enough boo-hooing. Wrestling saved me. When I tuned in, and saw what these kids at school were talking about. Professor Tanaka was in the first match just destroying a jobber. I was hooked from that point on. And we would listen to, at that time, one hour a week. You'd probably get four if you were lucky, if they were short enough, five matches. But right in the middle of the show, there would be the local promos. For our case, it was Baltimore, since that's where I was living. And they would speak to us. And I told Chief Jay Strongbow that over the years when I became friends with him. I said, Chief, you were talking to us. It, it made a difference. I say, for me, it saved me from probably going in a bad direction because I knew if my chief knew that I was under that kind of situation, you'd do whatever you could to come in and save me. So when you were saying, I need you to come to the arena because I'm going to be wrestling Professor Tanaka or George Steele, it was like, man, we got to go support the Chiefs. It's like, he needs us. So, yeah, television, one hour. Can you believe it? But see, it's like over the years, I come up with the analogy that, you know, it used to be that TV was the advertisement for the house shows. Now the house shows are advertisement for TV, unless it's a pay-per-view. And it's like, you're not going to get the same experience. You're just not. It's great angles. You can cover wrestling well from a television production aspect, but you can't feel it, man. You you were there, and when you hear that crash, and I'm going to lead into your other point, my first show, November 28, 1973, at the Baltimore Civic Center, and it was a battle royal. Pedro Morales was still the champion. It was his last title defense, believe it or not, because a few days later, he was going to drop the belt to Stasiak. We had no idea, of course, and it was like, when I walked in, it was magical, like a kid, I guess, at Disneyland. I describe it as, it wasn't an odor, there was a smell of excitement. It really was. It's not just uh, pomp and purple smoke, and it was really like, 
people were buzzing. They they just you talk about dancing in your seat. They were. And it's kind of like, uh, I'll give a little plug to Ray Stevens. If you ever heard his song, The Blue Cyclone, man, it's just like that. As soon as they dimmed the house lights, that's it. Everybody started to scream because they knew. But first you see the state athletic commissioners start to walk to their positions at the table. And then it's like, oh, man, I, I had no idea. And people are telling me, yeah, they, they're going to they're gonna sit down. And then it's like, really? And... In Baltimore, there was just a huge curtain on the stage, which faced uh, that would be the north or the south wall of the Civic Center. And somebody said, you know, every once in a while, somebody will peek from around that curtain just to take a look. And it's like, no kidding. So, of course, my eyes are glued on the curtain trying to see what happened. And as I would find out years later, the boys would do that to gauge the house because they got paid on a percentage basis of what the house was. And, you know, sometimes people, uh, they get a little amnesia, we'll say. We'll put it nicely as to uh, what the figures were. So you want to keep them in check just to make sure. So uh, I'm watching the curtain, and, of course, the lights go down. The first match comes out, boom, boom. Okay, and then here they come marching to the ring for the battle royal. And, man, I'm telling you, I describe it as it looked like an army marching into battle, and it did. I, and there they are, before your very eyes, the people you see on television. It was almost unbelievable. And the great thing is with the house lights down and just the color that's projected from the ring lights, and I found this out over the years being in the acting profession, both as actor, producer, things of that nature. Lighting is everything, man. And uh, they certainly knew what they were doing because the colors, they were just vibrant. It would be like a Blu-ray almost, you know. It was just that great. If you left the house lights on, it would be, yeah, it's nice. But when you cut those house lights out and just focus the ring lights, man, that was fantastic. So I tell you, I... Instant love affair, without a doubt. Absolutely. Well, who was the, the, the you mentioned it was the Battle Royal, but who who was that guy that uh, you, you or guys that you'd say had had the lion's share of the audience as far as getting that that big pop? Uh, the guys that really kept kept the, the the fans on the edges of their seats uh, that night that you saw your first show. Without a doubt, that was Andre's first appearance in Baltimore. So everybody was just buzzing about Andre. Now, see, my friend's father. At that time, the downtown area of Baltimore was very seedy, very dangerous. You wouldn't want to let a teenage kid go down there by himself. So my mother and father were happy that I was going with my best friend's father. who They were both great wrestling fans. So the only problem was his father did not like Battle Royals. So he's like, look, don't tell Dad it's a Battle royal." So I'm like, yeah, okay, it sounds good. So he's like, okay, guys, who are we going to see? And this was a Wednesday night, by the way, which is kind of like it's weird. But at that, those days, Baltimore ran on Wednesday night. So we're telling him, oh, well, Cheat's going to be there, and Tanaka and Fuji, yeah, yeah, Pedro's going to be defending the belt. Oh, okay. And the Giant, he's like, oh, man, I want to see the Giant. So everything was cool until they all start coming out, and then he looks, you guys, you didn't tell me it was about a royal. But then once the bell rang, he didn't care. It was just excitement, unbelievable excitement. But, yeah, Andre was it for that night. Of course, the Battle Royal came down to the Chief alone with Tanaka and Fuji, and my buddy put up a gallon fight, my hero, but of course they beat him in the end. 
Fuji fellow in chief, Tanaka fellow in Fuji, and then that was it. Tanaka got the match with Pedro. And it was just a fantastic battle royal. But one thing I'll never forget, Glenn, when Andre came out that night to wrestle singles match, he wrestled Fuji. You know how they throw eight matches after the battle royal, mm-hmm. at least in those days. Well, it's funny because Fuji's pointing at Andre and like making motions. He's going to throw him out of the ring, right? And Andre's just smiling. And I said, it looked like a piano with so many teeth. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and, of course, it, it just destroyed Fuji. And we loved it because, you know, the dastardly Fuji with Tanaka, all the dirt they had done through the years, and it was like, uh, yeah, now Fuji's getting his. That's it for you, Daddy. There ain't nothing you could do with the giant. So, And I guess when you look back at it, you could say we were demented to a point. Because uh, one of the next shows I went to was Bruno against Lou Albano. Oh, and, wow. I mean, forget it, right? Anytime you're going to put uh, Lou Albano in the ring with anybody of that nature, Bruno, the chief, it's instant sellout. Like I say, the rest of the guys, the boys could have taken a night off. This one was August the 16th of 75, and it was like, uh, my God. And Lou did his job. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was a blader, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And that was the match before intermission. So we're down by the ring, and I was like, look at this. Look at the blood. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but the people were just in such a frenzy to see Lou Albano get his. And it's like, yeah, I guess in a way, some of the, uh, I don't know, what do they call them, the snowflakes today would be like, oh, my God, how can you like that? Like, <laughs> hey, look, we did. And call it a manly sport or whatever. Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll make one admission. I never cared much for the ladies. I didn't. But Vicki Williams, I fell in love with Vicki Williams. I mean, she was our heartthrob. Mm-hmm. But then when I got into the business and watched closely and saw what they went through, I had nothing but complete respect for them and said, wow, you know what, I was wrong. You, It's worse for you because your your physical stature is a lot different than the males, obviously, and it's harder And, man, I give all of those ladies all the credit in the world for what they've done over the years. That's just a tough, tough business. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk about your your thoughts early on and your your, your change of of heart uh, regarding the ladies. Uh, What were your thoughts on on when the midgets would come around? Uh, What was your opinion on that? Uh, Was it just something that you'd just go into the bathroom, or did you ever take much interest uh, in in, in the midget exhibition? Never left my seat from the moment I sat down to the moment it was over. But no, I didn't care about the business. Never cared. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. Yeah, you know, it'd make you laugh, but it was like, nah, didn't do it for me. I wanted to see the men beat each other's brains out. And I've heard it said over the years, some people would say, well, you know, they imagine it's their boss or whoever. It's like, nah, I was in there for each character. That's what sold me. I wanted to see how... And some people called it a soap opera. Sure, it was. You had to have a storyline. Otherwise, you're just watching two guys in their underwear beat the hell out of each other. It didn't make any sense. So you had to have a storyline to it. And, man, oh, man, did they deliver with the storylines. They were just great. We're talking about classic WWWF wrestling with Nikita Brezhnikov, author of When It Was Real, out now from Crowbar Press. And uh, we're just getting into... Uh, some of the uh, the great, great highlights that you had from your seat uh, in that arena. And, boy, I want to talk about, uh, 
you know, you, you mentioned, the, you know, the guys and your admiration and your appreciation and how you, you sat and you watched every every match on the card as much as possible. Uh, let's talk about getting the chance to actually go behind uh, the scenes and, you know, meet meet these guys as, as a fan back in those days. When was the first uh, fan encounter you had with a pro wrestler, your first encounter? And uh, talk about what it was like uh, meeting some of these guys that uh, you watched on TV and you went out to the arena shows for. The first encounter where I actually touched somebody, and yeah, it's a big deal, was the Chief was wrestling superstar Billy Graham. It was August the 27th of 1977, and, you know, superstar, he just, he was it. When he took the belt from Bruno in Baltimore, it was like, to me, I think that was better, having Bruno chase superstar. That was my favorite year by far, because Bruno's still around, and he's chasing the guy that took the belt from him, Chief is getting his matches. Tony Gurria, Putski, they're getting title matches. So on this night, Strongbow going after the belt with Graham, and it was like Baltimore was Chief's town. We loved him there. Bobo and Putski as well were very hot in Baltimore. So that night, uh, Chief's wrestling Graham, and, I mean, he's not making a wrong move. He throws Graham in the corner. He charges. You usually think Graham's going to duck and Chief will hit the corner. No, he stopped put the boot to him, and it was like, damn, he's making every move perfect. He's going to win tonight. I just, I can feel it. Then sure enough, boom, he gets him in the sleeper. I said, that's it. I'm going to be in the ring when the chief gets the belt. So we were in the middle concourse, beautiful section eight, which was right in the center. I hit down. By the time I got to the lower concourse, Superstar had thrown Chief into the ropes. They collided. By the time I reached the floor, Chief's over the top rope and counted out. I'm like, what happened? It can't be. So I'm watching. Here goes Graham limping back to the dressing room. Chief had worked his legs over pretty well. And, man, people are punching at him, spitting, throwing things. And I'm looking like, you're crazy. But then it's like, wow, look how big superstars. I'm that close. So then I thought, oh, beautiful. Here he comes. Here comes Chief. And uh, he was dejected, of course. But, man, Glenn, on television, he didn't look that big. But he was like a giant, and he was 6'2", and I mean 245, so Chief was no small guy, but it was like, wow. So I slapped him on the chest. I said, good match, Chief, and it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I actually touched and talked to Chief. So then they go away. We didn't have a show in September. October 1st was the next card, and he's wrestling Tanaka. So I go down there, and it's like, uh, man, I'm going to be ready, and I'm wearing a shirt that had a picture of an Indian chief. It was orange, and it had the words chief on it. So I'm standing, and now I've discovered the secret. You can get down to the ringside and watch these guys come and go. So you could always tell when the hero was coming out because the flash bulbs would go off. No music for you youngsters out there. We had no kind of entrance music. The music was the people's cheers or boos. Well, Tanaka came out first, and... It, he had just suffered a broken leg, a broken ankle back in, uh, I think it was August, because they were going to change the tag belts, but then they had to delay it a while. Because Haystacks had done him in twice. He broke his ribs in 73. This time he broke his ankle. So Professor was still supporting the ankle with boots, because usually he wrestled barefoot all taped up. So you could hear the swish, swish, swish. And him just looking at the crowd, it was like, man, you got to be complete maniac if you want to challenge this guy because he looks like he'll have you for dinner. No problem. 
So he gets in the ring, and then here he comes. Here comes the chief. Clint Flash is going off, and he was wearing a beautiful white headdress. And I stretched my hand out as he's getting closer, and then all of a sudden, it went black. I got hit from behind by the security guard. Just nailed me with a like a forearm. So next thing I see, Chief looks up at the guy like, you goof. So he reaches over, shakes my hand, and lifts me up. And I'm like, oh, man, that's it. I'm gone, you know. If I didn't already love the guy, I do now for sure. So that match ends with Chief's got Tanaka in the sleeper. Tanaka throws the salt. The Chief is blinded. So it's like, I got to go save him. So there I go, heading down to the ring. See, Glenn, I knew I, I belonged in that ring all along. It just took some long time for me to get there. So I go down to the ring, and luckily, they're taking the, most of the security took Tanaka away because people were trying to lynch him because of what he'd just done. And then the few that were left, Chief was doing his thing. He's staggering to this side and that side. They didn't know which side he would end up on. I was lucky. He came out on my side. So there he comes. I'm trying to hold him up. 17 years old, I weighed about 150 pounds, brushing the salt off of him. I said, Chief, you'll be okay. Then here they come again, boom, 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 knock me out of the way and take the Chief off. So it was like, man, that I, when I got back to my seat, my friends are like, do you know what you just did? Do you believe what you just It's like, yeah, I was cool, wasn't it? You know? But respectfully, you know, it wasn't like doing anything bad or like take a swing. To, like I said, you'd be crazy. And I saw it many times. People take a swing at the villains. Another incident when Spiros Arion wrestled Putsky. That was uh, July 22nd, that same night where I met the photographer of 78. And I ain't kidding you, Glenn. I, I was sitting in the front row, and Arion, Putsky didn't do a blade job. Arion pulled something out of his trunks that looked like the, the steel tip of a protractor or whatever the hell you call that thing, and he starts stabbing him in the head, and the blood's just pouring. Up to that point, Arion could do a damn thing with Putsky. He just powered this, powered that. He was looking great at that time. He just dropped about another 30 pounds. Putsky's definition was fantastic. So, you know, he owned Arion, so then it was like, okay, he gets him near the ropes, and he just opens up a head wound. Putsky tumbles out of the ring. He's counted out. So, of course... Instant riot. They're ready for murder. Arion, you SOB. They already hated him because of what he'd done to Chief and Bruno over the years. Well, that didn't make it any better. So the security guards were doing a pretty good job of fending off those that were trying to get to him. But this old guy got through. He had a chair. And uh, our, no, he was the first one that started it, an older guy. He got intercepted. But this other poor sucker got through and nailed Arion in the back with a forearm. Well, when the Iron Greek turned around, he said something I can't repeat on the air. He chased the guy, and the poor bastard tripped and fell. Well, that was it. Arion put the boots to him. This guy had blood coming out of his ears, his nose, his mouth. The guards just grabbed Arion and whisked him off. I think they may have even carried him. But it was like, man, you got to be crazy to take these guys on. And I'll, I'll tell you stories, but when Nikolai Volkov, my buddy, my brother, and uh, God rest his soul, I miss him every day. The strength, the it, it, it legendary strength, when you saw him doing the apples on television, that was no gimmick. Like they took and they, they loosened the apples or they made them weaker. Ah, Nikolai, he's incredible. What he could do with his strength, 
that man, and they were all like that, except Nikolai was an exception. He was Superman among the Superman. I call him Herman Munster because that's what it reminded me of. Anybody ever saw the Munsters television show, mm-hmm. Nikolai would be like a real-life Herman Munster, the stuff that he could do. Mm-hmm. But Nikolai could sing better. Oh, yeah, Nikolai could do a belt of that. He <laughs> was, uh, but the heart of the man was as big as the strength that he possessed. I mean, uh, one story in particular, he he became a housing inspector after he retired for Baltimore County. But uh, what he would do, he would go out and check for high grass and weeds. And, uh, you know, they would people, of course, always complaining, my neighbor didn't cut the grass, this, that. Mm-hmm. So his job was to go check on the complaints. So one time he said, I go see an old lady. And she, he said, she was crying. She said, sir, I, I have nobody. I, I cannot cut the grass. I, oh, please, uh don't give me the ticket. He said, I could have given no bullshit $500 ticket. I got off work. I went, I cut her grass. I said, Nicola, I'm proud of you. Beautiful. He said, yeah, I could not do that to the poor lady. I said, that's the kind of guy he was. And I swear to you, Glenn, I saw him give away dolls, pictures, you know, and a lot of times people would think that, uh, you know, Nikolai, maybe you could book him cheap. And it's like, he's no dummy. He knows what's going on. But he loved to stay active. So he would take small paydays sometimes for like a lesser show just so he could be part of what he loved. It was in his, absolutely, in every organ throughout his blood. He loved it till the final day on earth. So it was like, yeah, Nikolai Volkov was always going to be a part of wrestling. I want to take you back and connect Nikolai back to the, the 1970s. When was the first time? Now, now, we're not going to talk about meeting him and, and then working on your career just yet, but when was the first time you got to see Nikolai actually in the ring uh, on, a, on a card at, at a show uh, that you had a chance to attend? Now, for me, it wasn't going to be until 77 when I Nikolai, because I didn't start attending regularly until 77 because my age and the situation where it was located. So, you know, for the most part, we'd see him on television. And then, uh, you know, when it, we'd see him in person. In 77, though, it was strange. He was starting to drop weight because he was trying to get into pro boxing. And uh, Dick Worley used to tell me, he said, you know, he was damn good. He said he could have had a career. He said, but he was just too kind-hearted. It plays into what I just got done telling you, actually. It's like, he didn't have the heart to be a boxer, Dick Worley said. For those that don't know, Dick Worley was one of the great, finest referees in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, as Vince McMahon would describe. Mm-hmm. And Dick Worley was a boxer, too, so he, he took Nikolai under his wing and tried to help him. But uh, that would have been my first uh, real experience to Nikolai was around 77 in the later part. And then he stayed, and uh, he got a resurgence in 79, he hung around doing uh, some prelim matches. They threw him under the hood for about a month as the Super Destroyer. It gave him the Grand Wizard. That didn't work out so good. He said he couldn't see so good with the mask. He hated it. It was hot. And it was summertime when they did it. So, I mean, he, he was a big guy, so a hood wasn't going to work out that good for him. But then, in 79, uh, Bruno was making like a comeback because he started to do the TV broadcasting with Vince in October of the previous year. So then, you know, Bruno would do this or that, but then they wanted to give him a push. So 
so they said, who do you want to work with? And Bruno said, Nikolai. So then they repackaged Nikolai. And uh, at that point, he was back to about 313, just 64-inch chest, enormous, ready to go. And seeing him in person and doing the things he would do, that choke slam that he would do, it was unbelievable to just lift a man like you would a barbell. And, you know, a barbell, like you've heard a hundred times probably, it's balanced. You pick up a human being, they're not balanced, but with Nikolai, it was like, up you go, no problem. And then bring the guy down over the knee, and, of course, doing the way Nikolai was doing it, he didn't want to actually cripple the guy he's working with. So that took great strength as well to handle a man of about 230 pounds or so or bigger and not break his back but make it look like you're doing it. So his enormous strength once again, because a lot of times people say, well, you know, Nikolai wasn't what you call uh, like a a poet in the ring. He he wasn't fluid. No, he wasn't. He'd be somewhat described as clumsy without a doubt, but he didn't need to be. He didn't need to be Bob Backlund. I mean, Nikolai's forte was strength, and that's what he did. And uh, he could brawl, which was good. I'd say his matches against Bruno were probably the best, without a doubt. And I'll tell you a secret. One time Bruno said to me in Steubenville, uh, he said, because uh, we were at the famous St. John Arena, and uh, Nikolai was going to wrestle Dominic Danucci, one of my favorite people and favorite wrestlers watching. And uh, Bruno said, you know, as, as strong as people talk about me, he said, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I think Nikolai was a little bit stronger. I said, really, Bruno? That's, that says a lot. And he goes, you always respect Nikolai loved Bruno. And my my take, Glenn, I'll tell you, and for you wrestling memories then and now, people, even though, uh, you know, when Nikolai passed last year, it wasn't that long after Bruno. And uh, sometimes I wonder if maybe that didn't take a little bit out of him, you know? And it hurts me because what a year that was last year. We lose Bruno. Johnny Valiant, you know, he gets hit by the vehicle and dies right after Easter. Then boom, boom, then Nikolai's gone. It's like, ah, no more. Bundy, it's like, man, this has got to stop. It's too much. Yeah, it is just so sad to be losing your friends and and these people that have done so much in the wrestling business. But to have that personal connection, it really just has to break your heart. And I want to talk about your personal connection to to Nikolai here, because that also is a very important part of this book as well, um, Nikita. I'm going to talk about how you you two ended up and how your career ended up finding its way to Nikolai and, and just some of the good things that kind of came out of that as far as developing this friendship with this man who it's uh, just a matter of weeks away, will be uh, looking back on one year since his unfortunate passing. Well, you know, it's it's a strange... My mother, who's gone as well, she always had a saying, it's a small world. And uh, yeah, because I'll tell you, when I met Nikolai, I had no inclination of wrestling. Because sometimes people will ask me, and they say, well, this must be your dream, huh? It's like, no, are you crazy? I never imagined I could be involved with this thing you got to be kidding me. This is like a, a blessing, a dream come true, or you rubbed a lamp and the genie gave you a wish. And I, I was working because I also retired from the Baltimore Police Department. I did 27 years there. So at the time, I was in the patrol division, and I saw it was a local show for a boys club, the poster in the 7-Eleven, Pro Wrestling's Coming, Nikolai Volkov. 
So it's like, wow, you know, I'm working that day. It was a day, an afternoon show. Now, I collect tapes. Well, now they're discs. But back then, I was collecting tapes. So I thought, gee, maybe I could get to see Nikolai. So uh, maybe he can give me a line on some stuff. So I go there, and I'm in uniform. So that got me in towards the back where the boys are. So it was just so wild. And here he comes, comes walking in. Hello, Sarge. Never met each other before that. It's like, hey, Nikolai. So then he did the ritual of coming out before the show and selling pictures. So I went over and talked with him. So I said, gee, Nikolai, you know, I, I collect matches. Uh, any chance you have any that maybe I don't? He said, no, no, but I'd love to have some. I, I, I'll pay you. I said, get out of town. You're going to pay nothing. Are you kidding me? I'd be my honor. I'll make this tape, whatever. And I didn't sell it. Anybody listening to WWE, it'll come bother me. So it's like, uh, okay, Nikolai, without a doubt, you know, so from there, give him a tape of his matches, and we become friends. So I, I kept pestering him. Nikolai, I want to get into wrestling. I was a good, uh, about 210, 215 at the time. He said, no, nah, you have a good job. Everybody gets hurt in the wrestling. So I'm like, damn, I, I want to do this. So I balked up a little bit. Legit. It had to be legit because the police department always giving you drug tests all the time, so I couldn't do any of that other nonsense. I was all... Meat and potatoes and hit the iron. That was it. Mm -hmm. So at one point, I'm about 2.30. So he said, I tell you what. I tell you what we do. You'll be my manager. I said, I won't be manager. I won't be in the ring. He said, you'll be in the ring, goof. You'll be there. So I said, all right. I said, let's do that. I said, but Nikolai, I want to be like chief. He said, goof, how you going to be Indian? I'm Russian. I said, yeah, okay. So then we come up with the Nikita Brezhnikov gimmick and uh then just traveling with him. And with me, I do have background of, of Polish, Croatian, Italian, and Nikolai was part Italian, so it was a too hard of a transformation, being Eastern European already, speaking Polish language, and then uh, learning with Nikolai Russian, develop a little bit better accent as time went on, and then developing what has become my second skin with this costume that I wear, this the German or this uh, Russian Soviet general uniform and the hat, absolutely 1000% legitimate. That thing cost me arm and a leg. The coat has been redesigned over the years. It was a cartoon in the beginning because, you know, wrestling just like a knockoff. But then in a couple of movies that I did, we made it legit. But yeah, with Nikolai, he always took care of me. He, he, without a doubt, showed me, you know, do this, how to do that. But it wasn't just him. Everybody we worked with, and these are guys that are superstars. The first match I worked was with uh, against uh, manager Nikolai against Duke the Dumpster, Duke Drosy, and then uh, that night Jim DeAnvil Neidhart. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention we lost poor Jim Neidhart last year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was like, uh, wow, this is unbelievable. But they they all helped. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And you'd be working with people, since I was managing Nikolai, then we'd be working with Sergeant Slaughter, Tito Santana, people like that. And then, uh, of course, Sheep would join in from time to time. But they always, and I was old school everything, whether it be police, wrestling, whatever, shut your mouth, open your ears, listen to the guys that are there, to the old timers. Now I'm an old timer, as I can say it. Listen to the old timers because they know. Let them teach you. 
And that's what I did. And that's the only thing you can do is respect as well. So, And I believe it or not, Glenn, I got to work with the legendary Bruno San Martino a few times. Bruno was a referee for a couple of matches. Socked me in the jaw one time, and uh, it was like it was an honor and a privilege. But I'm going to tell you something. He was no young guy, and he didn't give me everything he had, obviously. You know, he was just trying to do the, the gimmick punch and uh, not knock me on into next year. But I tell you what, I felt it, and I can only imagine if that man let loose on you, you ain't gonna get up, Jack. He he was a gorilla. Nikolai, uh, we talk about his friend Bruno as well. Johnny is actually the one that used to say that he's like a gorilla. Bruno's friend and Ken Patera as well. It's like my God. But you know what's funny when you talked with a guy like Ken Patera, he's like, yeah, I did that 500 pound military press. But he's like, I don't know what the hell I did it for because, boy, do I suffer from it now. It's like, yeah, it was great then, but can you imagine what it does to their bodies? It's not just the physical abuse of the wrestling with a slamming into the mat, hitting the floors, but pumping that weight every day to stay in shape. And it's like your body is so damn unforgiving, and it never forgets. As soon as you reach about that four zero mark, it knocks on your door and says, hey, Goof, remember what you did back then in the 20s? There I am to remind you of it. That's why, please, I try to tell the kids today. I got two big messages going. Number one, I'm prostate cancer survivor. All men get checked. Blood tests. Uh, you know, nobody wants to go to the doctor because they're afraid of the test he does yet. Nobody likes it. But guess what? That's a little bit late if they can find an enlarged prostate at that point. Get a blood test done. Mine, I, we call it the cellular stage. They still had to give me the fish fillet, the big operation back in 2000, 2002. Oh, hold on a second. You put a lot And then that was the alarm that reminded me to listen in on you uh, <laughs> for your call. So uh, with the, uh, yeah, get the prostate, get the blood test done, and then... Please, for you kids that are out there today, the matches that you're involved in, take care of your bodies. Of course, take care of each other. But, man, I'm watching these kids today, what they're doing. It's like, man, i got to go sit in a hot tub after just watching this. This is unbelievable. The the abuse your body's taking, your organs as well, The just the devastation. It, it, you know, World War II, of course, Memorial Day is just a few days away where a lot of guys would die. It wasn't just from gunshot wounds. When a grenade would go off, it didn't have to be shrapnel, but the concussion from the explosion would just decimate your organs. And it's like, you know, that's what you're doing. When you take a big slam or you hit that corner, you go flying through the air with the greatest of ease and come to that landing. Whoa, Daddy. It's uh, it's taking a toll on your body. And you only get the one body. You can't trade up for another one. They could maybe fix some parts, but that's it. Oh, most, most definitely. And we're uh, heading into our, our our final segment here. We still have a little bit of time, but I, I want to talk about you know, your role as a manager uh, for Nikolai Volkov. Now, growing up and, and seeing these great WWF cards uh, in the 1970s, you had to be uh, taking some of that stuff and put in the back of your mind of the great managers, you know. And one of uh, uh, that you mentioned earlier at the top of the show, uh, you, you told the story about, and there's something you mentioned in the book, uh, a little anecdote uh, about, is uh, one Lou Albano. And uh, why? Well, definitely one of those guys that uh, stayed in the picture for quite a long time and uh, 
it was one of those that, you know, whenever there was a, maybe a, somebody that was out, you know, could for whatever injury, he was kind of like that utility guy because not only was he a manager, he did have some wrestling experience. But talk about Lou Albano and uh, what he meant to you as far as, you know, not only uh, what he did in the ring, but just some of the stuff that you had a chance to uh, get to know him with. I did get to know Lou very well over the years. And what a wonderful guy. I mean, kind-hearted as well. He was very religious. The last couple of years, when Lou wasn't really active, he wore a huge crucifix. He was a very religious guy. And uh, the Heroes of Wrestling thing that tried to take off in 1999, Lou was going to be the commissioner. So uh, it just didn't pan out. But seeing him in different shows, different cards, being with him, he was like a walking comedy act. I mean, you're around Lou Albano, you're going to be laughing. But he had a little bit of a, a phobia about germs. So uh, he didn't really like, uh, if he, anybody watches Big Bang Theory, Lou Albano would be like a walking uh, uh, Sheldon. He didn't like to touch people. He didn't like people touching him. and He was really weird that way. I'm a little bit too, I'll admit, I, I don't like that. But one night we were at this private party so Nikolai, you know, the boy's always having a good time. He said, watch this, watch this. So he takes his hand under the faucet and gets some water on it. And he lets Lou pass by. And then Nikolai lets out, "Hashu!" And he flings the water. Well, Lou thinks he just got sneezed on all over the back of his neck. Nikolai, what's wrong with you? He runs over to the sink and he's got his head in the sink. Because there were little kids around, so Lou couldn't let Lou. And he's washing soap and washing his head and his air in the sink and it's like we're laughing completely because it's hysterical but one time I was at an autograph show and my mother only time she ever come to see anything I did but she hated it she said she didn't like the character she didn't like anything about it but my wife brought her because we were in Baltimore we were doing a autograph thing my mother wanted to go out to dinner that so okay Lou Albano's there so uh, I said, Lou, this is my mother. Oh, this is your mother? It's impossible. It's got to be your sister. Well, of course, you know, it just it put Mom over the moon. She was so thrilled. I'm like, Mom, my God, you know, Lou's giving you the line. But that's nice. That's nice. You know, enjoy it. Enjoy it. But I learned so much and stimulated Lou over the years. And Blassie. Fred Blassie as well. I did get to know Fred very well over the years. Again, through Nikolai. And... I got to watch Freddie perform Pencil Neck Geek. Now, I had no clue that uh, it was legitimately a song, but out on the West Coast, back in the 70s, the guy named Dr. Demento, who was a big disc jockey, he was kind of like Casey Kasem, only on like a goofier level. He played these uh, goofy songs, and of course, Freddie's Pencil Neck Geek kicked in. So, unbeknownst to me, my wife is like, yeah, we knew Fred Blassie from Pencil Neck Geek. It's like, no kidding. But you didn't know anything about wrestling. No, no, didn't watch wrestling. It's like, my God, what a, what a, a contact and a crazy, unusual coincidence. So I'm watching Freddie and do Pencil Neck Geek, and I'm just beaming because it, it was just great. And the song, if you never hear it, you can find it on the Internet. And uh, one of the lines from it that I like is, I'm looking for the guy that's providing the dimes because they say pencil neck geek come a dime it doesn't. So it's like, yeah, I always love that. But Freddie, he's another one. It, the first time I met him, he said, man, I got to go to the bathroom. I said, well, Fred, the bathroom's right down the, the hall. He's like, 
I know, but I don't want to go down there. I'll get mobbed. You know, people will be bugging me. And he said, uh, I, I'll keep it clean for the air glass. He said, uh, you know, I'll be up there with my uh, thing in my hand trying to do my business, and some goof will want to come and shake hands. I said, come on, Freddie. I, I, I pulled out my badge and said, look at this. He's like, he starts laughing. He said, you son of a bitch, are you serious? I said, yeah, come on. I'll have the other bathroom for you. So we go down there. I said, all right, everybody out of the bathroom. Mr. Freddie Blassie has to use the facilities. I'm ordering everybody out. Sure enough, they all got the hell out. He's laughing. He's having a great time trying to control himself. He's like, you son of a bitch, I can't believe it. It's like, Fred, hey, I told you, you've got to go. you the king of men. You're going to the bathroom. This is it. So that was one of my great Freddie Blassie stories. Loved the guy. He was uh, genuine. And he could turn it on, though. You know, he was Glenn, so deep with Hollywood people, you know, it goes all the way back, Dick Van Dyke show, Regis, Regis uh, Philbin, he inducted him into the Hall of Fame. I was at the very first one in the, geez, all the way back, 1994. It was in Baltimore. It was called the Omni Hotel. I don't know what the, it used to be the Lord Baltimore, but every name changes. But uh, that was a very humbling in those days, it's not the big event that it's turned into. But, of course, I had to be there because Chief was being inducted and Bobo, so many greats. But, yeah, Regis uh, Philbin, he was uh, a big fan of, as well as friend of Freddie Blassie. So these guys, you know, every walk of life I've been involved with, and I've done so much, but everybody wants to talk about wrestling. I mean, it's unbelievable with uh, big Hollywood names all the time. They don't want to talk about wrestling. They want to get pictures taken with the wrestlers. It's like, it, it's just something about it that touched our lives, touches everybody's life. And that's why I go on to say, you know, look, it, it's there. I'm not a fan of the product today because it's just not for me, but if it's there for a kid, like it was there for me when I needed it, then, hey, more power to him. Go for it. I don't knock anybody. I don't knock Vince McMahon. I think he's a genius. Whatever he's doing, hey, that's great. It had to change, Glenn. I mean, the format when Hulk Hogan became champion, yeah, I call that the day the music died because things changed. And uh, our guys were getting older. So they had to do something different. And Vince is a genius. I mean, uh, he took it. He's got more billions than me, so... Who the heck am I to sit there and, uh, and criticize the man, you know? We have a few more minutes here uh, on Wrestling Memories Then and Now with our guest, Nikita Brezhnikov, author of a fantastic book, When It Was Real, out now on Crowbar Press. And I want to talk just a little bit about the book itself. Um, I mean, we, you, you talk throughout the show, and I can definitely tell uh, your passion and your love for pro wrestling and its history. Uh, what was that final nudge that finally got you uh, working with Scott Teal at Crowbar Press? Because if you want to get a guy to put out a pro wrestling book, He's definitely at the tops of the list. What was it that got you to finally share the memories and also what has it been like to uh, connect with Scott, who has done also, aside from great books, he's done starting to do a really good job out with uh, the CAC? That's a great question. And I'd be slapped if I didn't mention what a wonderful person Scott Teal is. And just, I call him the maestro. He's like the master chef. Because, look, Glenn, I gave the man over 560-some pages now, he's reduced it to 286, 
And he trimmed the fat. Nothing's lost in the translation, but it was like, this was a 10-year project. It took me about two years to compile it, and then it took me about six to find somebody. And it, Scott didn't take this on immediately. It took me three tries. I had to keep pestering him, and he's like, Nikita, and he's a wonderful, very religious guy, nice guy, and he's now vice president of Cauliflower Alley Club, and he did a fantastic job. I don't think he sleeps. I asked his wife, I said to, to Angela, I said, does he sleep? Is he a vampire? Tell me the truth. I won't tell anybody. And she's like, I know, it's like he never takes a break. But the uh, one of the time, the first question that I sent to him, or the first uh, inquiry, he was like, listen, I appreciate you reaching out to me, Nikita, but we don't need another This Day in History book. And I'm like, Scott, it's not that. Please. He's like, well, you know, I appreciate the concern. I'm just, I'm kind of busy right now anyway. Do me a favor and get back to me in a couple of months. All right. I let a couple of months go by and I got back to him. And he was sticking to his guns and he said, you know what? I just, I am just not thinking this is going to fly. Because, again, it's just like there's so many of these type of books out there. So the third time, he's like, all right, I'll tell you what. Send me a sample. Because I, I said, Scott, you're going to be, this is different. He's like, all right. So when he read it, he was like, okay, we have to do this. We absolutely have to do this. And he said, you know, Nikita, I was never a big, because he's down in the, the Tennessee or yeah, Tennessee area, and he's like, I was never a WWF guy. I was more with the NWA in the South from Florida and things like that. He said, but I'm learning so much from this, and we never had a crossword. We never had a day where we butted heads. He opened my eyes on a couple of things. You know, uh, there was a great growing up in Baltimore. Earl Weaver was the manager of the Baltimore Orioles, and he wrote a wonderful book called It's What You Learn After You Know It All That Counts. And that speaks volumes because it was like, I thought I knew so much, but Scott Teal showed me a couple of tricks too. And some of those are included in the book. And we make mention, and I give the credit to Scott without a doubt. And it's like, wow, Scott, I didn't know that. He's like, yeah, I didn't think he did. That's why I mentioned it. So it was like, he's a wonderful guy. All of his books, you know, Jim Ross, just the JR really has extolled his virtues on the, the net talking about how great Scott Teal's books are and how much passion he puts into the books. And the first thing Scott Teal said to me was, if you're looking to make a lot of money, I'm not your guy because we're doing this for the passion or we're not doing it. I said, okay, Scott, I understand, no problem, because what I feel like I'm doing is giving back to what these men and women gave to me. I'll say they saved my life without a doubt. From the rotten childhood I had, it would have been hard, Glenn, for me to take a turn to go south and just get into who knows what. But through wrestling, it meant that much. You don't just watch it. You lived it. it. You know, like people, I guess they get caught up in some of the phenomenons today, like the bat, you know, that's carried on through the generations and Star Trek and things like that. Well, wrestling was that. You didn't just watch it and forget about it. You talked about it to the next show, which was one hour, or the next events that would be monthly. We were fortunate in Baltimore. There were monthly events. It was Christmas. Every month when they came to town, you lived for the next wrestling show. There, there was nothing like the, the uh, announcement for the next month's show. The hush would come over the crowd, and it was like, 
oh man, so and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would just, of course, they knew how to make the pitch and they delivered it so perfectly. And then we were going out of our skin and we couldn't wait for the next month. And of course, we already had the tickets, so we were happy as could be. But yeah, Scott Teal, I'll tell people if, uh, you know, a lot of everybody, of course, who has a book is going to tell you it's this, it's that, that you got to get it, you got to do it. This book is fun. It, it takes you back. It's a learning experience. We didn't miss a thing. I, I'll say this much. Rereading it, the editing of it, we didn't miss a fact of that I can remember of the 70s, all the things that happened along the lines. It really gets elaborate for the years 77 through 79 because, of course, as I was growing as a person, my involvement got deeper as a fan, and then... Uh, the coverage got deeper. But the thing about this book, when it was real, that really when I got it, Scott Teal pulled one on me. He pulled a rib on me. He didn't tell me he was going to do this. And I'm looking, because I sent him pictures, and it was like, I'm looking at the advertisement. I said, 227 images? Where the heck did you get 227 images? And then I open it up, and it's like, the clipping. I love the newspaper clipping because I used to say to my wife, boy, one day I'd like to see a book with just newspaper clipping. And I said, man, Scott did it. Look at this. This is beautiful. And he's got them strategically placed for whatever uh, year or month of match that we're talking about. And it's like, I'm, I'm, please don't misunderstand. There's not a clip for each part or each show, but there's a, a lot of them in here and things I had never seen before. It's like, Man, this is just beautiful. He's done an excellent job. And as an editor, publisher, friend, he's a wonderful guy. I can't say enough good things about Scott Teal. Well, you know what? Our time is uh, just about done here. Uh, we're getting close to the, uh, I can see the timekeeper over there ready to ring that old bell. We definitely want to have you back on the program again sometime in the fall uh, so we can uh, talk some more about the uh, the great uh, run of uh, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in the 1970s and early 80s that is captured in your book, When It Was Real, by Nikita Brezhnikov, available at crowbarpress.com. Uh, definitely, my friend, the door is open if you want to come on in. We, we'll just have to uh, schedule something down the line. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share uh, some wonderful details about your life and this wonderful book. My absolute pleasure. Believe me, Glenn. And that's why I say when it was real, because that's how we saw it and we loved it. Mm -hmm. So thank you and keep wrestling memories alive because wrestling memories then and now, it's what it's about. There could be no now without the then. For Nikita Breshnikov, I'm Glenn Brockett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.